Uh, so here's the deal. I eventually want to preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. But I didn't tell you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I told you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So why? Well, because in order to adequately understand uh, chapter 2, uh, we need to have some foundational things locked in. All right? uh, and truth be told, there's, there's a lot of new faces in here compared to the last time we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's been a minute, uh, several years for us since uh, we've uh, covered that as a church. Uh, and so here's how we're going to play things today. Uh, we're going to fly through as fast as I am personally able to all of 1 Corinthians or most of 1 Corinthians chapter one to hitting just the highlights also that you can know and assume and picture the right things when it comes time to actually look at our text for this morning from chapter two sound like a great plan uh, good here we go so it's going to take us about 20 minutes to get there but I promise it's going to be great which means that you get a sermon and a half this morning I, I, you don't have to thank me I can feel how thankful you are it's just radiating off of you, right? Um, so you ready to go? Here, so what are we doing today? All right. uh, we, we are in the third week of our effort to kind of uh, look at a handful of ways that the local church uh, stands out as distinct from the rest of the world around it, from the prevailing systems and worldviews that we find ourselves uh, surrounded by, and that we are in intentionally filled uh, with, with people and with pictures and with a purpose that flow against the streams and values of this world. Right, and that sounds like a big deal. Uh, and so we kicked things off a couple of weeks ago uh, by looking at how the gospel uh, changes our position before God. Right, the Christian story is a fundamentally different story from every other competing world story. That by default, all people are separated relationally from God because of our sin. And that through the sheer act of charity on God's part, those who are spiritually dead are brought to spiritual life. All right? That, that because of our sin, we are, we are owed the just and right punishment for that sin, but God steps in and does something about that sin. This isn't something we earn. It's not something that we're even somehow responsible for maintaining. Dead men can't bring themselves to life. And neither are we capable of keeping up the perfection of righteousness that is necessary to forever satisfy a perfectly righteous God. But the Apostle Paul seems to be very, very fond of saying the words, but God, right? We looked at that in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. But then last week, last week we, we saw how that positioned, changed by the gospel begins to also have effects on everything flowing downstream from that position change. And the gospel of Jesus also turns our priorities upside down. It turns them inside out. We, we looked at how the apostle Paul gladly set aside every single thing that he used to build his identity around, used to value about himself and try to put on the biggest pedestal he had. And all because upon being introduced to Jesus, he was convinced, thoroughly convinced, that knowing and walking in relationship with Jesus was a far better option than every other thing he had previously chased. Even though he had 
carried a better Jewish pedigree and a better Jewish resume than everyone else in the room. Uh, Those things were now recategorized for him uh, in his own head, in his own heart. They were now recategorized as something that was even harmful for him because he saw them as being in the way of him getting more and more of Jesus. They were barriers that he needed to get rid of. In other words, he had a reckoning, a glimpse of Jesus that immediately put every single other thing in its correct place. Jesus kind of has that effect on folks. The guy that was busy chasing after being a better Jew than every other, everybody else, he flipped his life and his priorities upside down and spent the rest of his life and priorities trying to help everyone else know Jesus better. All right, so where does that leave us for this week? Well, I think that the next marker down our little logical river, if you want to think of it that way, is to see how the gospel creates a distinction in our posture towards those who don't know Jesus yet. Towards those who don't know Jesus yet. Call them the outsider. We can call them the unregenerate. We could just call them the church visitor. But the question on the table for us this morning is how do those who trust a gospel that changes our position and changes our priorities, how do we then turn around and share uh, with, with others who don't yet see the beauty and the value of Jesus? What, like, what do we do? And to answer that question well and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which is where we ultimately have to answer that question, I'm convinced that we first need to see how the Apostle Paul articulates the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. It's the very end of a paragraph, but we're going to fly through this. And uh, Garrett's running the computer back there. We'll see if he can keep up. All right, so Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. All right, let's call time out there. All right, so like I said, like I said, uh, we have to just hit the highlights this morning. So like if we, we preached through 1 Corinthians, I think it was like three years ago. Uh, and so if you're really, really desperate, you can go like dig into the sermon archives and find all the stuff. All right? uh, but for now, the big stuff. So what's the big stuff that we need to see? Well, right out of the gate, right out of the gate, we see that the Apostle Paul kind of just kills off any idea that the Corinthian church might have had in their head that proclaiming the gospel is somehow about like intelligently convincing uh, others of some kind of highbrow spiritual wisdom. He just completely kills that idea. He says that when he got to Corinth and started to the church there, that he resolved to put away eloquence and to put away rhetorical skill and instead just preach about the cross. And if, and if you're completely new to the, you know, the church thing, the, the message of the cross is all about Jesus' brutal death as an act of execution by those looking to silence him. It's a cute little story. 
But that execution is not some political fact. It's, it's not some judicial act. It, it, it's not even some noble example for us to follow. No, the Bible teaches that it is the means by which God pays the debt for our sin by taking the punishment that we deserve upon himself. And that those who place their faith in Jesus' work on their their behalf are now washed clean of sin, washed clean of shame, and are forever, and I mean forever, reconciled to uh, to the grace of the Father by the finished work of the Son. God does and we are saved is the message of the cross. And while stripping the proclamation of the gospel down to nothing but the message of the cross might seem like a, you know, kind of an out-of-the-box tactic to us today in our culture, it was seen as completely insane to the audience receiving this letter. Just absolutely out of your mind, Paul. What are you doing? This church is in the famous city of Corinth. Don't you know who we are? epicenter of rhetoric, pilgrimage side of all those who who value and aspire to lofty wisdom, to eloquent speech giving, to, to sound logic. That's what we do here, Paul. Don't you know who we are? The city of Corinth prided itself, wanted to be known over uh, for, for eloquence and wisdom and for rhetorical skill over and above all the other things that the city of Corinth was known for. Uh, because Corinth seemed to have a, a little bit of a, a rivalry with Athens, who was just to the north of her. All, right? um, uh, all of those things were things that they competed over. But Corinth had more money than Athens, which means Corinth could pay the orators better. And so they'd poach off all the best speakers and they'd poach off all the best philosophers and say, come set up shop in our theater because we can pay you more. It was common practice in the first century to go down to the theater in the evenings just to listen to someone talk. Who does that? Doesn't matter if you agreed with them. You were just there for the show. You respected the trade. Are you a good enough public speaker to keep me on the edge of my seat? I'll, keep, I'll pay you money. Let's go. It's a good evening for me. And, and if I can find a hole in your logic, I'll shout it out from the stands. It'll be a fun time for me. Paul brings the gospel to Corinth and says, nah, nah I'm not going to play those games. I'm not going to do any of that. But listen, it's, it's not because Paul didn't have some eloquence of his own. It's not because the gospel can't go to toe-to-toe with the wisdom claims of this world. In fact, I don't think the gospel even breaks a sweat in those environments. But Paul seems to understand here that the Corinthians would have missed the forest for the trees. And he wasn't about to let them fail that way. And so he resolved to preach the cross. But in verse 18, we got a little problem on our hands because it says that that plan is actually incredibly counterintuitive because the cross is considered to be folly to those who are perishing. Folly, that's a fun word. It's a Disney word, right? In our culture, we treat folly as something that's cute. We, it's, it's a word that's kind of fitting for America's funniest home videos, right? Slapstick, slip on the banana peel, three stooges kind of stuff, right? But that's not what the word has always meant. What Paul means by it is something that's contemptible. Contemptible. Folly is a mistake that happened because of arrogance or because of recklessness. It's a, it's a tragically wasteful thing. Someone should have known better and because of laziness, chaos happened. So it's worthy of public mockery. Otherwise, how else will we prevent others from falling to such a fate? Crucifixion in the first century Roman world, it was typically reserved for 
traitors and non-Romans. It wasn't something you were supposed to talk about in polite society. If anyone of notoriety was crucified, it was done specifically for the reason of shaming them. Yes, it's an execution act, but they had a lot of other execution acts. They reserved crucifixion for the make a statement moment. And that's why the Jews all demanded that Jesus be crucified. It wasn't enough to just simply have him executed. They could have picked a lot of different ways to do that. It was an intentional effort to bring public derision upon not only Jesus, but anybody who would be dumb enough to continue following him. Don't just get rid of him. No, no, ground his legacy into the dirt. The cross is the last place in the Roman conscious that would ever look for a leader. It's the last place where someone would, uh, was supposed to find something worthy of honor. And so a commitment to hold up the cross, not, not some secondary part of the message, you know, that Christians are maybe just a little bit embarrassed by and try to downplay a little bit. No, but as the central truth claim in our faith system, foolish is the only vocabulary word that lost people have for such an idea. It's contemptible. And that's why... That's why, church, I think we ought to never be too discouraged whenever someone fails to respond to the gospel the way we hope they'll respond to the gospel. Um, it, it's not a matter of you trying to figure out a more eloquent way to say it. It's not, it's not how you said it. It's what you said. It, it's not a matter of them trying to, you, you have a, a really good answer for all of their questions. Now, see, at the end of the day, the problem is that dead men need to be brought to life. And without that, it's folly. It never dismisses sin, never diminishes sin. Spiritual blindness is not the same thing as innocence. But you can't really expect, expect a blind person to understand the beauty of what's standing in front of them. It's just not going to work. They're going to miss it. But what's even more painful is that according to the Bible, the spiritually blind don't even know they're blind. And so they mock and they revile. And sometimes they even persecute those who claim to see. And I'll admit that it would be a tragic story, right? Um, it would be tragic if it didn't have so many stinking examples in the Bible of God giving blind people sight. Literally and spiritually. And so in verse 20, Paul starts asking around, Hey, where are these supposed wise men I've been hearing all about? Right? He names two groups of people specifically, scribes and debaters, right? And he does so, I think, for an incredibly important reason. The scribes were experts of the Jewish law. Um, the best modern-day equivalent that we could probably, you know, an analog that we could hold up would be like lawyers, if you wanted to call them that. It's not a direct comparison, but it works. They knew the Jewish law inside and out. And the reason why they knew the Jewish law inside and out was because it was literally their job to sit at a desk all day and hand copy versions of the, the, the scriptures. They would copy it down. They would take the copy that was in front of them. And they would write by hand a new copy for someone else. And then at the end of the day, when, when they would make their kind of office hours available, if anybody had a question about the law, the finer matters of detail about the law, it was their job to settle the dispute because they're the ones looking at it all the time. That's the scribes. So why does Paul single them out? Well, because if anyone on the planet had the ability to study their way into the kingdom of God, it was the scribes. 
Like there's, there's nobody better. There's nobody higher on the mountain. They were the experts in the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly telling his people what he's planning to do and how he was going to do it. And even the supposed experts missed it. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that you need a lot more than just expertise. You need to be given eyes to see. The second group that Paul singles out mentions are the debaters. They're in the same boat. Because of the elevated culture of logic and rhetoric in the city of Corinth, every, everyone was trying to make a name for themselves by being uh, you know, on the debate stage. Your wisdom had to be sharp. Your tongue had to be quick. If you could pull those things off, you were respected in that town. And if anybody on the planet had the ability to reason their way into the kingdom of God, it was the debaters. They had the tools for that. And while they had a lofty, kind of high-minded mental footholds for, for duty and for valor and for you know, the spirit of the Logos in Greek thought, they couldn't reason their way into seeing the beauty of what God had done for them. See, whether, whether you try to walk the pathway of lofty intellectualism or walk the pathway of kind of a, a pious religiosity, neither one of those pathways are good enough. Neither one of those pathways will actually get you into the kingdom of God. And so what I need us to see this morning, is that's not an accident. Rather, God seems to have set it up that way on purpose. It's divine design. Church, God drops a bloody cross in the very middle of his grand plan to reign forever. And the wisest of all the debaters of this age see that cross as a gigantic folly. Why? Well, it's because that's something that's laughably beneath their notion of a king. It doesn't make sense to them. Kings don't lay their lives down for their subjects. It's supposed to flow the other way, right? Why would a king ever do that? And so what do they do when they hear the message of the cross? They bow out. They say to themselves, no, 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 that can't possibly be for me. I could never follow a king like that. God drops that same bloody cross into the middle of his grand plan to forever reconcile himself to sinners. And the most pious of religious followers see that as a stumbling block. Why? because it's an offense to their own self-made righteousness. Everything that they built for themselves. You, you can't earn that relationship. You can't reciprocate that relationship. It can't even, can't even be maintained by you. You must simply receive by faith what God has done. And so what do they do when they hear the message of the cross? They bow out. They, just, they say to themselves, ah, that can't possibly be for me. I could never give up control in that manner. Church, I need you to see and understand this morning that the crucified and self-sacrificing Savior is not some side story. It's an intentional hurdle that our God has placed in front of every kingdom and philosophy of this world. Because by it, by that hurdle, those kingdoms and philosophies are proven to be bare. They're proven to be insufficient, proven to be impotent, to, uh, to be something that can actually save someone because the hurdle's too high for them. To preach Christ crucified is not some vulnerable moment in an otherwise culturally respected gospel. It is the perfect plan of God to separate sheep from goats. Goats. 
It is an on-purpose culling of those who do not have eyes to see. And to prove that, in verse 26, Paul continues on by saying this. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Uh, Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, uh, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right, so Paul says, hey guys, uh, you you may have forgotten this, uh, but I was there when most of you met Jesus. And uh, I got some news for you. You're not as awesome as you think you are. That's what he says. He says, I know where you come from. I know what kind of house you grew up in. What are you doing right now? Like, like, why are you so desperately trying to present yourself as something that you're not? You're working your tail off trying to impress a spiritually blind people with a man-made eloquence and a man-made rhetoric and a man-made earthly wisdom, but none of those things can actually save anyone. It certainly didn't, use, it certainly didn't save you. That's not what God used to call you to light. It's not what God used to reconcile you to himself. No, he opened your eyes to the beauty and the surpassing value of who he is. And in a moment, you were changed. You were moved in an instant by his immeasurable kindness to a brand new, forever reconciled position before him. Okay, but but like, I mean, how how does all this stuff like help us in our understanding of a third distinction this morning, right? right? Like, how does... How does this articulation of the gospel in Corinth affect our posture towards outsiders? That's the game we're trying to play though, right? And that's where our second sermon comes into play. Don't worry, this one will be shorter. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Here's your free part. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in what? In the power of God. All right, so Paul just said, for the second time in this letter that is precisely because of their hangups in Corinth over giving too much value to things like wisdom and rhetoric and eloquence that he was intentional to lay all those things aside and just preach the gospel of the cross in Corinth. And and the reason for that, the very clear and obvious reason that is, is because if he didn't, they'd be tempted to build their faith on human wisdom instead of God himself. And Paul wasn't going to let him do that. He wasn't, let him going to walk, he wasn't going to let him walk down that road. He wasn't, going to, he wasn't about to let them see Jesus as just some other philosopher that they need to consider. Rather, he bent over backwards to press the issue of them seeing Jesus as nothing more than a crucified, suffering Savior and King. If you know your New Testament history very well, Paul actually learned that lesson the hard way. Um, 
The story of Paul arriving in Corinth uh, happens in Acts chapter 18. Uh, but uh, Corinth is just a little south of Athens, and he's making his way across the map like this. And so he's got to go through Athens in order to get to Corinth. The, Paul's arriving in Athens happens in Acts chapter 17. And by most accounts, um, Athens is the one major Greco-Roman city that Paul doesn't seem to have a lot of success in. It doesn't mean he has no success. There are some people who come to know Jesus, uh, but... Compared to everywhere else God put him, yeah, Athens is kind of a failure for Paul. Um, he goes to a place in Athens called the Arabicus, uh, which is kind of a town hall deal. It's on a hill that's about halfway up the Acropolis in Athens, if you've ever been there. It's called Mars Hill. Um, and so at this Arabicus, all they would do is just debate things all day long. Just like just this big public forum. Uh, Luke tells us in Acts 17, 21 that they would, quote, spend all their time and nothing except telling and hearing something new. In other words, they love to hear themselves talk more than they love to actually solve problems. So if you want a modern day equivalent, think Congress, right? In Acts 17, in Acts 17, while Paul is speaking in this Arabicus, he's doing a pretty good job, like, keeping people's attention and the, you know, a crowd full of philosophy-minded folks. He's got Epicureans in there, Neoplatonists in there. He's got Stoics in there. And the whole gamut is hanging out in the Arabicus on Mars Hill. And Paul's using philosophy and he's quoting a bunch of Greek poets and he's leveraging those Greek poets to point to far bigger cosmic truth about the true God. Right? It's, he's just absolutely killing it, right? right? He's got him on the hook. But then Luke tells us in Acts that Paul transitions into talking about the resurrection of Jesus and he loses the crowd. They turn on him. Um, they begin to mock him, drive him out of the building even. Why? It's because the idea of a crucified and risen Savior is folly to them. They loved the philosophy. But as soon as he got to the Jesus part, they bailed. Now, some would hear that story and conclude that, well, you know what Paul needs to do is just kind of eliminate the stuff that brought offense and you know, he'd be more successful in his evangelism attempts if he cleaned up his presentation style a little bit. You know, stay away from some of those no-fly zones. He'd probably have a little bit more success as an evangelist. It's usually what we argue in those moments. Paul could be smart. God would finally use him. So Paul eventually leaves Athens, probably feeling like he didn't do a very good job. And he starts heading from Athens down to Corinth. But upon arriving in Corinth, instead of polishing up his speaking skills, instead of honing his delivery, Paul himself tells us that he chooses to strip away everything except for Christ and him crucified. If God allowed him success in Corinth, it could only be because God saved people by the power of the cross alone. See, at the end of the day, 
No one was going to be standing there because of Paul's eloquence or anyone else's eloquence. And no one was going to be standing there because uh, they had given a, a right and logical answer to all of the questions or every single question they had. And no one would be standing there because the Corinthians church had proven themselves to be kind of culturally relevant to, to everyone chasing after those kinds of things in Corinth. They, they tapped into the, to the nature of the city and they found their niche, right? No. Now see, if God was going to build his church in the city of Corinth, it would not come through anything that man could build. It would only come through the power of God. Paul was convinced of that, and so he stripped everything else away. And so back to our original purpose for this morning, right? What does any of this have to do with our posture, National Baptist Church's posture, towards outsiders of, of the church? Well, it's really, 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 really simple, right? Because of our position before God, and because of our priorities shaped by the gospel, our posture towards outsiders is never, and I mean ever, about a sales pitch. It's just not. It's never about us trying to win someone over because of our eloquence or because of our creativity or even because we've answered all the questions they might have. Now, that doesn't mean that eloquence and rhetorical skills are bad things. Uh, I, I certainly, I promise you, I really want to be a good communicator. I want everybody else who stands in this pulpit to be a really good communicator. Those are good things. It doesn't mean that creativity and new ideas are out of bounds for our church, not even close. Creativity is something that God often uses to show us the beauty of who he is and the goodness of who he is. It's good and lovely to lean on those things, absolutely. And we certainly certainly don't believe that good answers to questions are a bad thing. In fact, we believe the opposite. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly important thing that God uses to grow his people. But not a single one of those things are necessary to God. Not a one of them. He doesn't need any of those things to save people. And sometimes they can even be in the way. And if we spend all of our time trying to major on the minors, at best, guys, at best, we are going to get the balance wrong. We will be nothing more than some kind of skewed version of what God has actually called us to be. That's best case scenario. There's a lot of not best case scenarios. It is equally possible that we will end up winning people to something that's the wrong savior. A functional savior of religious sounding eloquence and spiritualized creativity or even pious human wisdom that cannot actually save them. We, we don't need to impress anyone. We just don't. We don't need to try to convince people that we're something that we're not. God doesn't need that, nor is it how he saved you and I. But rather, we genuinely and repeatedly invite anyone who will listen to an otherworldly but culturally foolish message of the cross. Trusting the entire time that our God is good and he knows what he's doing. And that he, that, that he will use that message for his good purposes. And that those whose eyes are being opened to his beauty and opened to his truth will see who he truly is and come. Spiritually speaking, we are nobodies who don't have to impress anybody but have been called to invite everybody to know the somebody that saves. Will some revile the message? Yeah, yeah, they will. Uh, in fact, they, they might revile more often than not. But God chose that message on purpose. 
It's not some oversight by him. It's not an accident. Certainly not some kind of PR problem he's trying to fix right now. And he hasn't asked for our advice on how to dress it up. It's his message. Will some revile the messenger? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they will. Um, but isn't it, isn't it better than being celebrated for the wrong things? I think I'm convinced it is. I told you last week that Paul was the blue chip, right? That he was super smart, that he was super educated. Mentioned a moment ago that he's quoting all the Greek poets while, while in Athens. How do you think it felt for Paul to have the Corinthian peanut gallery always questioning his intellect and his credentials because he refused to play their silly little games? You think that was hard for him to swallow? It would have been hard for me to swallow. It wasn't because he couldn't keep up. It wasn't because he didn't know how. It was because he was aiming for a far more eternal prize than self-exaltation could ever bring him. His aim was to see as many as possible come to salvation in Christ alone rather than any man-made system that might seem impressive on the surface but lands a lot of people in hell. And so we, as a church, we've got to be aiming for the same things as Paul, right? That's our goal willing to lay down anything that might create glory for ourselves so that no one ever gets confused between the two. So that those hearing the gospel in this place will have their faith rest in the power of God and never, never, never in wisdom or charisma or the eloquence of men. So what do we do with this stuff today, huh? How can we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, our response is the normal one. We repent of sin and we lean in to what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think, I think that response probably takes the shape of a consideration of our own calling. Just like the Corinthians needed to realize where they came from, we probably need to realize where we come from. Not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And that's exactly why God chose you. He didn't need any of those things. It's probably better that you didn't have them. So celebrate that this morning. Celebrate what he's done. Secondly, though, I think our response also needs to take the shape of reconsidering what, peop- what we want, desperately want people to see in us individually and corporately as a church. What, what are we hoping that people will walk away from us impressed with? Because it's either you or the God who saved you. And, and, and oftentimes those things are in conflict. My heart wrestles with that question. I don't know if you're better than me. Probably not, though. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's the time that we set aside to help people, you know, give space to them to respond. If you want to talk, I'll be down front. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, how can you respond? Well, you do that by meeting Jesus. By meeting Jesus, the Bible teaches that all people by default are separated relationally from God because of their sin and that we are owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls that punishment hell. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through the grace of Christ. And so how does he do that? The beautiful folly of the cross. Jesus came, he lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And 
You can do that today. I, I get it though. I, I, that sounds ridiculous. I know it does. It sounds ridiculous to those who are perishing. I, yeah, it does. It does. And purposely so. It sounds like a stumbling block to those who think that they can make their own way. Yes, it does. And purposely so. But it is also the power of God to save those who have been given eyes to see. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're ready to respond to Jesus' call. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front if you want to talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Uh, You've been hanging out for a while and God's calling you to formally join our church family as, as a member. And so you've been around long enough to see the awkward gospel beauty of who we are. And you're ready to add your own awkwardness to the pile. Let's go. Water's fine, man. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit, but you've never been obedient to his command to be baptized. First of all, that's not cool. All right? But secondly, we just so happen to have a few baptisms scheduled for next week. And so I know how to fix that problem if you'll come talk to me this week. Let's go. Maybe you're here this morning and God's calling you to take the gospel to somewhere far away from here. And the kind of place there that needs people, like desperately needs people, not who come with wisdom and eloquence and all the things that you think missionaries are supposed to have, but people who come and consistently and effectively and doggedly preach the message of the cross. You can do that if you know him. I'd love to help you figure out what those next steps are. Whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a letter to a church that tries too hard. And for an apostle that loved them well enough to strip it all away and call them to you. God, thank you for the good things going on here. There's probably more than we can count. But also, you don't need a single one of those things. You've given us yourself through what you have done in your son. So God, help us cling to that instead of those other secondary things. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Break through the folly and the stumbling block. Exalt yourself this morning and build your kingdom. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.